This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Animal Studies Podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jenny Splitter, an independent journalist who covers food, agriculture, and climate change. And my guest today is Tom Philpott. Tom is the food and farming correspondent for Mother Jones and the author of the book Perilous Bounty, The Looming Collapse of American Farming and How We Can Prevent It. In Perilous Bounty, veteran journalist and former farmer Tom Philpott explores and exposes the small handful of seed and pesticide corporations investment funds, and magnates who benefit from the trends that imperil us, with on-the-ground dispatches featuring the scientists documenting the damage and the farmers and activists who are valiantly and inventively pushing back. Hi, Tom. Thanks for talking with me today. I'm happy to be here, Jenny. So the book opens with this memory from your time working on a small organic farm in North Carolina in the early 2000s, where you describe the work of harvesting delicate salad greens in the early morning, and that it's so cold that your fingers go numb halfway through the harvest. But you say the pain is worth it because the greens are so good that one food writer describes them as hallucinogenic in their intensity, which sounds pretty darn good to me. 2006, when the anecdote in the book is around, I was transitioning to about half time, splitting time between farming and writing. And by 2011 is when I moved off the farm and moved to Austin for a while, Austin, Texas, to be close to, um, for, you know, for family reasons, and um, haven't farmed since then. But yeah, that experience of being on the ground, you know, hands in the dirt, trying with, you know, with some other people to scratch a living out of the land, off the land, definitely colors my, my worldview. And it gave me a, a you know a real strong sense that while I do think that you know more diversified multiple scales of farms like I, I'm I'm not someone who thinks that we should only have small farms um, I think mm-hmm. we should have multiple scales of farms and I think one of the problems is that we're losing small and mid-sized farms really rapidly especially mid-sized farms um, we can talk about there is a, a you know somewhat illusory rise in in small scale farms but. Um, so, I, you know, it, it did strengthen my advocacy for, you know, multiple scales. And I, while seeing small and mid-sized farms as part of the solution, um, and also taught me really vividly just how hard it is, um, incredibly hard to, to run a diversified operation. And the, the sort of pricing pressure from commodity agriculture is definitely part of that pressure. Just sort of the, you know, the the, the push, uh, the sort of um, gravitational pull in a kind of capitalist agriculture system to always, always be lowering prices is is definitely one of the problems as I see it. And yeah, and I think it's interesting 
we can get into the whole sort of mid-sized small farms in a bit, but I do, it is kind of an interesting definition that is, is sort of loosey goosey, you know, because medium and small are different depending on which state you're in. And I think I made the mistake of calling a dairy farm I had covered in New York small because I was used to thinking of really large scale operations and some other dairy farmer from New York told me that was one of the, you know, bigger ones in the state <laughs> because right. they're all sort of smaller there. So it was a good lesson lesson for me. Well, I have to say as a Californian, uh, not anymore, uh, living in DC now, but but growing up in California, it was so nice to read this deep dive into California history, uh, even if it's kind of a cautionary tale. Yeah. <laughs> because there's so much I did not know about. Um, I think even just the basic kind of way the irrigation system sort of is constructed and and how much we rely on it. I don't think we really learn about that as kids growing up in California. Maybe they do now. Like we build a mission in fourth grade or something. That's like the standard thing. That's all I remember of California history from, from my elementary school days. But really all this food we're eating is kind of like we've reaped the benefits of this massive irrigation system that was built, you know, and now coming under threat. But it's it's just interesting that I think that's not really taught in California. And especially just because, you know, we all, I don't know, growing up in California, you come to, and if you move away, you come to really appreciate how wonderful the food is and everything that's grown there. But we don't necessarily learn about sort of, and I guess that's typical in the country of like where the food comes from and how much goes into that and how much impact there is on the land. And we don't talk about, you know, farm workers very often, you know, as, as kids growing up, even though I knew about it actually, because my mom was an elementary school teacher and she had in Watsonville. So she had a lot of farm worker kids in her class, but I never would have, I didn't learn about that system at all, you know, in school. And it's kind of amazing. So that's like the sort of the backbone of the whole state. Yeah. Uh, I know just overall, what's been your experience kind of covering California agriculture, learning about the history? What was your impression? Because you're, you, you did not grow up in California. Is that right? <laughs> right. Right. I did not. So it was all, it was all very new to me. And, you know, one, one thing that was really interesting was um, I got a fellowship at a, like a writer's retreat uh, situation at a place called Mesa Refuge, which is in um, Marin County, Point Reyes. So it's on the coast in Point Reyes, uh, California. This is Northern California. Absolutely beautiful country there. And um, it's funny because um, I, I got, you know, I, I did two two week stints, one when I was writing the proposal and another one when I was in the middle of writing. And it's, it was really interesting because it, it was a really great lesson in how that there are many, many Californias. Um, mm-hmm. And the part that I was focusing on was sort of the industrial agriculture land of the Central Valley. And, you know, that is, that's the place where if you're not in California, that's where your California food comes from. And, um, and maybe it's been trucked a long way. And, you know, I complain in the book in the section you just mentioned about like how our greens had this real intensity of flavor, but the stuff that, that would come from California, even that sort of organic stuff was just pretty lifeless. And I, I think that, that people, 
you know, outside of California, don't necessarily, unless they've, they, they, they've traveled there and gone to the farmer's market or something, you know, might have that view of food. But like the Point Reyes area, when, when you're there, you could be like in the south of France or, you know, in, in Tuscany or something. It's just like these incredible quality. If you go to, a, if you find a farmer's market around there, incredible quality fruits and vegetables, you know, cheeses that are the rivals of anything in Europe. Wine country is, is not far from there. Some of the more European kind of wine countries of, of the state. And, and so it is all of these different things at once. Like it is this, there are parts of it that are this ideal. I mean, I think, you know, land prices are extremely high. So there, there's a lot of dysfunction, but it, like in a place like Marin County, there, there's this incredible land trust system where you've got agriculture, you know, sort of people have sold the development rights to it and they'll be um, in agriculture forever. And so that, you know, that, that shows you there's like this peak at a different California of small and mid-sized farms that are, you know, doing things in a pretty ecological way. Uh, I think labor is, is always a problem, but, you know, just, you know, drive straight east, um, you know, through the, the Delta and get into the Central Valley. And it is an entirely different world. It's, you know, you know, one of the most industrialized ag- agricultural landscapes on the globe. And so the, the, the con- you know, that, that's one of the things I learned there is that the contrasts are incredibly mm-hmm. sharp. Yeah, I mean, you're kind of describing my idyllic childhood, basically, although it wasn't quite in Marin because Santa Cruz uh, isn't that fancy. But oh, yeah. I mean, back then, because I'm old, you know, my parents both just as school teachers on that salary could afford a house, you know, by the beach and you could go to wine country. Not that I was drinking it as, as a kid. We were stuck in the lobby or something when my parents were taking wine tours. But it was it is this sort of magical place, you know, in in those parts of the state. You know, you mentioned, I mean, yeah, of course, as with rising costs and everything, you know, so many other changes in the state, of course, it's it, that's kind of become illusory for most people. I mean, I don't, I sometimes go peek on Zillow at my childhood home now. <laughs> sort yeah. of, oh my God, everything's changed. But it, I mean, it's a beautiful state. I have a lot of affection for it. Constantly fascinated by the history. And so I loved this, well, a little weird to say I loved a description of a, a destructive flood, but I did really... <laughs> was fascinated by the description of the great flood of 1861 or 1862. And I felt better that this scientist that you interview also didn't know about it as a fourth generation Californian or something like that. Can you just describe a little bit that flood and the impact on on the state? Because I th- think it must have been so fascinating to pour over those. I think you had a diary of, of I can't remember that it was a scientist or who, uh, who was Brewer, keeping those. Yeah. William Brewer. Right, right, right. It was just so interesting to have that account. Tell us a little bit about that flood and kind of the havoc it wreaked on this on the, the state. Yeah, so so California. So this is um, 1861. Winter of 1861 is when it starts. And so California is a fairly new state. It gets statehood. You know, basically the the sort of rise of the gold rush was a was a big impetus for sort of uh, U.S. settlement, people coming, you know, go west, young man, people going west um, to settle in California, sort of white settlers coming in and prospecting for gold. And so you get basically San, the San Francisco Air, Bay Area is a boomtown of, of settlement, sort of um, 
rising up around the gold rush to the east. And the Central Valley is, you know, basically in the, the sort of deal with Mexico that where California became a U.S. state, if you were a landowner in, in, in the state, you became a U.S. citizen. So you're sort of a Mexican national who's suddenly a U.S. citizen. And most of the Central Valley, there you know, were Native American tribes living there. And most of the sort of land deeds were to Mexican nationals who were growing you know, cattle for the leather market. That was sort of the, the, the end goal of, the, of cattle growing there. But with the, the gold rush and the population boom, boom in San Francisco, beef became a, you know, a sort of a profitable commodity. And so white settlers were wanting to get into that game, like the gold rush, you know, you don't make very much gold prospecting, you make your money supplying the, the, the prospectors, but these sort of Mexican nationals held, held that land. And so, and there's really not much agriculture going on in the Central Valley besides, besides cattle. While it had been, you know, under Spanish rule and then Mexico for a good while by then, the, the sort of water geography of the region was pretty much unchanged. There were no big irrigation projects, no big dams or anything like that. So you had these rivers coming off of the Sierra Nevada mountains. You had Lake Tulare, which was the biggest lake west of the Mississippi there in the, you know, the southern part of the, of the Central Valley. Uh, and that was sort of what was going on there. Not, not very populated, lots of cattle, some Na- Native American tribes, and some large Mexican landholders, Mexican national landholders. And then it starts raining one fine day in December of, of 1861, and literally doesn't stop for something like 40 days and 40 nights out of the Bible, I'm just sort of this biblical scale rain event. And the rain hits snow, this, the snowpack that was already established in the Sierra Nevada, and melts a bunch of the snow. And so basically this epochal, epic flood comes in. And, and what happens is the entire Central Valley, and just, you know, so people have an idea, Central Valley goes from not that far north of Los Angeles, along the eastern edge of California, just uh, at the, and then it's bordered by the Sierra Nevada to the east, all the way up to the, to the very close to the Oregon border. So it's this huge valley, 300 plus miles long, comes under 20 feet of water. And when you look at contemporary accounts, a lot of Native Americans had kind of knew the area, had oral traditions. And they cleared out fairly early, but hundreds of thousands of cattle perish. Those numbers are in the book. It's this huge disaster for this this fledgling state. The capital is in Sacramento. Sacramento comes under 20 feet of water itself. I think the governor had rode a canoe to his inauguration, you know, the middle of Sacramento. And so it's this huge cataclysm was essentially very quickly forgotten, uh, but it did have a huge impact on agriculture because what happened was these 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 landowners lost their shirts they their their their, their um, cattle were wiped out they you know lost their harvest had no money and ended up selling their land on the cheap uh, out of desperation to these white settlers who were pining to get their hands on it and so that was the white settler takeover of california agriculture or of central valley agriculture i should say you get a shift from cattle to wheat because you know, no one had a whole lot of money to reestablish the, the, 
the cattle herds. And so this is where you get the real rise of crop agriculture in the Central Valley and the race immediately on to sort of channel and take control of these water resources that are both the, the snowpack of the Sierra Nevada and this incredible groundwater reserve, this aqu- these aquifers under the Central Valley. And, you know, the race is immediately on to learn how to control and exploit those. And so it, 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 it transforms California agriculture. And one of the things, one of the points I make in the, so here's the, the shocking, you know, we can look, look back in this history and go, wow, that's really crazy. I can't believe that happened. But the shocking thing is, so this sort of disappears from the California imagination. Like no one learns about it in school uh, to this day, but these scientists, these paleoclimatologists get hold of this information and they're doing sort of paleoclimatology around the San Francisco Bay Delta, looking at, you know, sediment deposits. And, and they start investigating. And what they find in their investigations is that this thing that, you know, when it's remembered at all, is considered this thousand year event, this, you know, complete anomaly. What they find is that in the past thousand years, there have been five or six, I think the number is six, flooding events that were greater in magnitude than this this 1861 event. The 1861 event doesn't even make it into some of the sediment records because it just wasn't big enough. And that caused a lot of consternation in the scientific community that ended up the U.S. Geological Survey ended up taking it seriously and doing a big study about what would happen. Just sort of background California weather rhythm, you get one of these things every 100 to 200 years. And so, you know, it's been 150 years since the last one. And then the, the chilling part on top of that is that there's this scientist at UCLA named uh, Daniel Swain who, who took that information and then layered on top of it, you know, the, the, the basic climate models that people are using. And what he calculated is that because of climate change, weather in California basically originates deep in the South Pacific with wa- warming water, warming atmosphere. You get more evaporation, more energy in the air. These, these storms form out there and come uh, to California in the form of these things that are called atmospheric rivers that can be many times the size of the Mississippi River in the sky, and they tend to come in the winter. And he reckons that, his team reckons that if you, when you put these two things together, the likelihood of, uh, of an event like that happening in the next 20 or 30 years is higher than 50%. In other words, it's more likely than not to happen. And then, you, you know, you start thinking about how different the Central Valley is today than it was then. Now we've got you know, these budding metropolises like Bakersfield, Fresno, that are um, drawing population from, you know, Los Angeles as real estate markets in those areas, you know, drive people out, you're getting these population booms. We've got actually more cattle now than we had been because of uh, really enormous dairy farms. You know, California is the biggest dairy producing state in the country, more than Wisconsin, you know, most of the dairy production, or at least, you know, more than half of it is concentrated in the Southern Central Valley. And this so, is something I didn't know until a few years ago or something, but yeah. how big the dairy yeah. business is in California. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Central Valley, especially the, you know, the, the, the deeper parts of it, the, the more Southern parts of it, are kind of flyover country in, in California. They're, they're kind of similar to the way that 
a lot of Americans think of the Midwest, you know, you, most of the population is concentrated, you know, concentrated at the coast, obviously in places like San Francisco Bay Area and, and LA. And, and tourists end up going to those places. You know, maybe you take a trip to the Sierra Nevadas, to one of the incredible, beautiful national parks in, in the Sierra Nevada. But you're just sort of going through the Central Valley, but the dairy farms there are just enormous. And the telltale sign is the tires cut in half and used as weights, like sort of automobile tires cut in half and used as weights to weigh down the silage, the sort of hay feed for the cattle. When you see one of those, you know that you're about to, you know, that you're around some giant dairies. And, you know, you just think about the, it's kind of terrifying to think about trying to move, I I forget the numbers, but hundreds of thousands of giant modern dairy cows. A, A dairy cow today is a giant beast. And the logistics of trying to get them, to save them from a flood, and the consequences of um, them drowning by the 100,000 is pretty terrifying in terms of like sort of the biohazard of, of that. And then just the, the population density. There was a near miss flood that happened three or four years ago at the Orville Dam, where this giant, this is a, a dam in the northern part of the central, you know, you know, right up against that Sierra Nevada coming into the Central Valley, massive rain event, a near flood. They evacuated the region below it. The And the evacuation did not, luckily the dam didn't burst. Uh, luckily it mm-hmm. held up. But the stories from the evacuation of just sort of, you know, you can well imagine the sort of parking lot highway of everyone trying to get out at once. And then, you know, just take that situation and put it in Fresno, in Bakersfield, in these these other cities in the region. Um, so th- these cities are the fastest growing cities in California at this point. And then you think about the food system implications of, you know, missing at least one year's entire harvest for the place that generates a quarter of our food. And then think of modern agriculture and its pesticides and fertilizers and all those chemicals that are stored in that area that aren't going to be a high pro, um, high priority to get out of there because you need to worry about people first and then, you know, these animals second. And imagine all of that getting released into flood water. And then you think about how, and this is something else I didn't know, probably Californians do have a better idea of this, but the Southern Central Valley is a huge oil production region. I mean, I guess there will be blood. Part of it was... Um, was set there, that movie that came out 10 or so years ago, but massive, massive oil production. I think like there, I think I found out for the book that it's like more than Louisiana or something like that. It's like one of the you know most concentrated places of oil production in the United States. And think of all those petrochemicals getting into into the, the this you know flood water as it seeps into the soil and into the into groundwater. And it's just it it hurts my brain to think. What's, I was going to ask you kind of if the pandemic kind of changed any any of your view on agriculture, what you wrote in the book. But I think what you're talking about now is just kind of reminds me of the sort of the, the meatpacking plant closures and what that did to farmers, because it's kind of, I think for me anyway, as someone who's covered a lot of the benefits of having the efficiency of these huge farms, while that might be true from just a pure efficiency, calculating the emissions standpoint, we kind of saw that basically there's just not a lot of give in these systems. So if something goes wrong, like that, something goes 
not according to plan where you have to, you know, stop production or evacuate a ton of cows, it's not going to go very well because they isn't really built into the system. So I don't know if you had reflected on any of that, you know, after writing the book and just kind of seeing what's happened in the last year or so. Well, I, I have. And, and I think that I think there are there are there's sort of like a pull between efficiency and robustness. Mm-hmm. And I think if you if you sort of move your food system to where you're maximizing efficiency, then you are creating things like right now, even in the pandemic, I can go to multiple grocery stores within a couple miles of my house here in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and find this incredible array of fruits and vegetables, uh, mostly from California, but also there's a lot of imp- will be a lot of imports in there from Mexico and Chile and places like that. It's incredibly efficient. But at the same time, in terms of robustness, you know, if such an event were to happen in California, um, what would happen to that supermarket shelf? And, you know, there would certainly, maybe we can make up for some of it with imports, but the prices would be astronomical. And, uh, and I think, you know, obviously, if you go in the other direction where it's you know, where you're, you're maximizing robustness, we, we don't need to rely on a bunch of uh, maverick farms, a bunch of three, eight, two, three acre farms to produce all of our food either. That would be a, a disaster as well. And I think coming to some better balance between those um, those two poles would uh, would really, really benefit us. And I, and I think, you know, the, the big example in the food system in the pandemic is just the incredible concentration of meat production into really large slaughtered facilities where the business model relies on the speed of the line going, you know, the sort of kill line going at a certain speed and the the margins are tight and profitability plunges if it goes below a certain speed. And maintaining that speed means that right now, as we speak in, you know, late January of 2021, you know, nearly a year into the pandemic, there are workers right now working shoulder to shoulder. They, maybe they have a plexiglass or plastic, you know, flimsy plastic sort of shower curtain between them. You know, hopefully they have masks, but they are working side by side right now. And it's no surprise that that industry was completely ravaged by COVID-19. Um, many, many deaths and many families just destroyed by the pandemic in that industry because of the it's so damn efficient. It's so damn efficient that it has to go really fast to make any sense for these companies. Um, and I, I think that's the that's a big example that and I think it's an indictment of the meat industry. I mean, there you know it's not the first indictment of the meat industry, but it is a real stain. Like I you know I don't know how that industry can justify itself after what it put its workers through. And, you know, something that that my reporting in the 2020, you know, really tried to expose is that even before the pandemic, that efficiency of meat production was as a matter of course, destroying these people's bodies. Just in the course of your job, doing their job day to day, you probably have a repetitive stress injury that is making parts of your life miserable where you're aching all the time and you're you know basically consuming your body in the course of work. There are ways to make the work, you know, there's ways to make it safer, 
but there isn't necessarily an incentive to do that from these companies because basically it, it certainly wouldn't fix everything but to have to have sort of there are some machines that would eliminate the need to have some of the shoulder to shoulder work but they're expensive and then you have to maintain them and it sounds like those efforts it just sounds like from at least from some of the learning I did that that some of those the folks at those companies might be sort of interested but then they're not going to necessarily have the have the okay to to invest in those machines and then you've also got some of these like really old plants that date back so far that they're sort of like nine stories tall from when they were sending the animals down the chutes and everything and so it's just not set up to improve basically i mean among other problems of of course but and well actually i i that kind of leads me into this part of the book that you talk about sort of exporting these this this sort of US style of massive meat production and kind of the impacts of that which has really kind of wide reaching consequences like it's 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 kind of who it's profiting and who who's not profiting you know not necessarily the farmers but uh, these large agribusiness interests and this kind of ties into some uh, the deforestation that I've been sort of fascinated with and covering for a long time I also don't know where to even just start with the whole system because it is so big and so hard to unpack I guess just well <laughs> I think I might actually start with Monsanto because they are the company that that looms kind of so large uh, in I think the public consciousness even though now they don't sort of really quite exist anymore at least not the right. name but I found I think the sort of impact of agribusiness is is kind of so wide-reaching and uh, difficult for like sort of the average consumer to understand. But I found this initial interaction that you had with the company so kind of funny. Sort of first, your first interaction with them is sort of sarcastically using Roundup Ready in a in a blog post that you wrote, and then you get a cease and desist letter from the company's lawyers. Is that is that right? Yeah, you know, I really I should be forever thankful for them because it. It marked a step forward in my career as a food politics writer, because at the time, this would have been in 2005, so 15 okay. years ago, 16 years ago, I was working on the farm we were just talking about, and I had been a writer before, a financial writer, and was missing writing and was having all these ideas about the food system. So I started a, a blog, a very mid-2000s kind of thing to do, just commenting on food politics, just sort of really not so much different from some of the stuff I, I do to this day, just sort of like analyzing trends in food politics, the sort of uh, global food system and the corporate forces at play. And I was already writing about various things that Monsanto was up to. And I started a thing called a Friday Roundup. Uh, every blogger needs a, you know gimmicks. And so I called my Roundup, Roundup Ready. And so I got a cease and desist letter from Monsanto. Wow. And as soon as it came, oh, and you know, just uh, one more thing about the story uh, about that time is that at that time, you, you know, you could put a, tr you could have a tracker on your blog to see where it was being read. And you could read the IP, the internet address of who was reading you. So I literally at this time, I had, you know, five readers, and then 10 readers, and then 15 readers. And most of these are friends and friends of friends and family members like, oh, there's my mom in Austin. There's her IP address. A couple of months in, I did start to see like Archer Daniels Midland and Monsanto IP addresses. And I think what was happening was like there was an intern doing Google searches of mentions of the company. And so they would 
see their, their name mentioned and they would click on it. And so I kind of knew I had this readership among these, these, these corporations. So this Monsanto letter comes in and I literally, I think my average post, I would have 30 people clicking on it. And I took a deep breath and I was like, okay, would not be fun to get sued by Monsanto, but this is, you know, like this is going to get me some attention. Like, I can't believe they're handed me this gift. Uh, and so I immediately wrote a, you know, tart response to their cease and desist letter, to, you know, telling them to get lost. It got picked up on the internet and it went the version of viral for that time. My readership expanded dramatically. I think, you know, I got into that, you know, after it settled down, I would have several hundred readers instead of 30 readers and ultimately got invited to move my blog to Grist because of that kerfuffle. That is what I owe, I should owe a thanks to Monsanto forever for some intern saying that and sending it to the legal department and probably some junior lawyer saying, okay, let me take this one and um, wow, you know, bust this guy's chops a little. And here I am today. Your entire career is thanks to Monsanto. <laughs> so then in going to visit the actual company, was this, did you write to them that you wanted to go spend a day there for the book or like, how did you kind of approach that that was in their period of having being on kind of a charm offensive yeah they, they basically <laughs> were were like you know realizing that they had an image problem and reaching out to a lot of writers i think they had reached out to me and and said you know hey come visit us anytime you know because i you know as someone who writes about this stuff i'm often in contact with the press departments of these big companies, you know, to get their comments. And so I had relationships with some of the people in their press office. And then I got a gig, a speaking gig in St. Louis. And I said, okay, now's the time for me to to go do this. So that's how that happened. I think I had a standing invitation and I took them took them up on it. It just it's just interesting because it seems like your experience it just it seemed very familiar to me and that there's kind of the although it sounds like there's a lot of time maybe that passed between this cease and desist letter and the visit. Oh yeah. But it's I just think, I think more than a decade had passed. And, uh, okay. and I don't think you know, I don't think probably any executive like Robert Fraley was even aware. I don't think it got, you know, past the sort of, you know, mid level manager. The executives were discussing the case of this uh, obscure blogger in North Carolina in 2005. But it did just make me think of how just in observing these companies, sometimes it feels like, you know, first of all, like one hand's not talking to the other, uh, but also it, it just, there's always these sort of like re- accounts of these sort of shadowy things happening behind the scenes. And then the public face, especially at that time, as you mentioned, like the charm offensive of like, meeting all these perfectly lovely scientists who are really excited about the technology and all this stuff. So it's just sometimes kind of maybe, maybe it's later when I started paying attention, like 2014 or something like that, I think for me, but it was just, it's always been kind of jarring. The thing, the actions that are taken don't always seem to to sort of go together. and, And I'm just usually sort of confused by the whole experience. I, was intrigued when you're sort of talking about some of the nitrogen fixing microbes, I think, or the soil microbes that they're developing. That seems promising. And then there's sort of a, not an effort to necessarily cheerlead for their kind of GMO portfolio or the pesticides, but to kind of highlight some of these new things that they're working on only in reality, these, the sort of bread and butter things that make the money are still this portfolio. 
it's just sort of interesting that there isn't necessarily this like reckoning of sort of the totality of the GMO portfolio, I think. And there's so many different little things. Like I think, you know, for me learning about GMOs early on, you kind of learn about each trait. But the reality is, and I think you maybe cover this at one point, but that, you know, for soy and corn. So say if one of the traits happens to have been associated with using less pesticide, like the BT corn trait, but the Roundup Ready trait hasn't actually decreased Roundup use. But the reality is these traits are all put together in the same seed. <laughs> it's one of those things that like the more you kind of d- dig into GMOs, there's there's always more to the story. For me, starting out, I always thought, well, it's a corporation and you have to be skeptical. And I think that's kind of where I ended up back <laughs> after all these years later. Talk a little bit about this sort of like, they're sort of working on this exciting new micro, but that they, and this happens for a lot of ag tech companies that it's sort of like, oh, if you use this, you know, might eventually eliminate synthetic fertilizer, might eventually eliminate pesticides. But the reality is they're kind of made to be sold with them so that maybe it's going to reduce them a little bit, but it's not really going to eliminate them. Yeah. So it was one of those reporting days. And I know you're familiar with them where you're just sort of like immersed and you're taking in all this stuff at one time. And so they're kind of like, you know, marching me through the, the halls of the company, you know, you know, my eyes are as big, you know, I'm like, here I am in the heart of the beast. You know, they take me through the, the BT section, the genomic section where they're like basically doing classical breeding with genomic markers. And that was really interesting. And I was impressed that they had stepped away, like Rob Fraley, who's one of the developers of GMO technology and was the uh, chief uh, technology officer of the company, I think until it got subsumed by Bayer or Bayer in 2016, you know, he wasn't making this big impassioned, you know, we're going to do all this, you know, wonderful stuff with GMOs. He was completely backing away from that, which was kind of, to me, I was feeling like a judo, like <laughs> I, I was expecting that. And, and he receded on that point, was talking about some of the limits of GMO, like I remember a time when people would say, oh, you know, we're going to have nitrogen fixing corn. And I said, hey, you know, how how is nitrogen fixing corn coming? You've been talking about that for a while. Oh, I don't think that's going to be possible. There's just too many genes involved. And it's just, you know, I think that, you know, if they if they find it, it's going to be another a different pathway than than, than GMOs. And I just don't think it's going to happen. And so yeah, I'm taking all this in. And then we go to the new microbials department. And what they were working on wasn't even genetically engineered microbes. It was it was just basically microbes. And I get this pitch. So in each section, I talked to like a chief scientist from that section. And this guy was giving me a pitch. And, you know, as I put it on the, in the book, it was like talking to some super organic farmer who's just like, everything is about life in the soil. We have to preserve and nurture life in the soil and it makes it so much more productive. And so we're selling, you know, microbes for farmers to bring their soil alive. And I'm getting the spiel and, you know, he's talking to me about it and they have these displays. They sort of have the products and some facts about the product behind this display. And, uh, and I'm looking at the display and I'm seeing that this product that he's, he's telling me about, the second ingredient is this fungicide that I had been writing about just the week before, and I'm terrible with these chemical names, and I won't forget, I won't remember the name of the fungicide. And it's one that one of the rivals makes. Monsanto doesn't even make it. And, you know, use has been on the rise dramatically in the Midwest. 
And it's associated with, there's potential that it's a brain damaging fungicide. And I, was, I had just reported on a study that I think came out of University of North Carolina, actually, uh, about this, um, this property of it. And I'm just like floored that here I am in like the hippie section of, of the company with the organic farmer guy telling me about life in the soil. And the very product that they're selling contains this, this pretty bad fungicide. And then, you know, later when I got home and I'm reviewing my, um, my notes and, you know, just sort of looking at stuff, I realized that the, the microbe that they were selling is this really common soil microbe. It's like, you know, you can go to your backyard if you have a backyard or the park and, you know, dig some soil up and probably take it to a lab and probably find this microbe. And, uh, and, and to me, it was just like, there's, I mean, this isn't obviously relegated to agrochemical companies. It's just, there's this tendency of corporations to just marketing as everything. I just found it really emblematic of the industry that it's trying to do something different. It's trying to distinguish itself and get its name away from, you know, being, you know, basically a seller of pesticides. And what is it doing but selling pesticides alongside this 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 common soil microbe? Uh, so yeah, it was a it, it was a major WTF moment. Uh, I think there's there's been so many there's been a lot of positive benefits to some of them, but but I but I think scientists it will tell you that you don't want to necessarily over rely on say Roundup or something like that, and there's some damage there. But you but you really uncover how you know, despite sort of outside scientists raising some of these concerns, kind of Monsanto in their, I think in their, in the approval process are, you know, really stuck to arguing that the resistant weeds would not really be a problem, even though they kind of discovered the trait for resistance and like sludge or something outside a company was yeah. also a really interesting part of the book. Going back to California, I thought this part about the wonderful company where it's this interesting uh, scene you're, you're recounting. I think you read it somewhere else, but that a wonderful exec sort of gets this crowd of pistachio growers really excited about how much they can earn from their for growing pistachios. But then it seems like in the next breath, they're also trying to get them to spend money to to kind of influence the sort of water rights issue in California. I feel like that is a really that's kind of emblematic of a lot of the relationships between kind of these big food companies and the growers they use. It's kind of this weird power dynamic because they need to win over the farmers, but they also want the farmers to sort of back them. And they really need also the independent farmers to kind of be their symbol to the world of like, look, we're not really this corporation. We have all these family farmers we use. Mm. But at the same time, they kind of need all the farmers to kind of back their positions politically whether it's on climate change or water or whatever, that seems to be this ongoing kind of theme. I see it in your book and just people I've met. What was your kind of impression of sort of the companies like the Wonderful Company and this endowment, sort of some of these, it seems like, I want to say shadowy figures, perhaps that's too, you know, uh, 
I don't know, cliche, but I guess I feel like it's so interesting spending all this time since I, you know, wrote so much about GMOs and just hearing so much about Monsanto for so many years (laughs) and then kind of learning about these other agribusiness interests. They really have a lot of power in California. And that was really striking to me. Yeah, so I think that's a really astute point, and that was a, a um, incredible scene in the book where this executive is sort of haranguing and firing up these these farmers in the Central Valley to put in more pistachios, and you know we've got this great marketing arm that will be marketing them, and we've got these markets in China and other parts of Asia and Europe, and it's all systems go with this. Just you know, put in the um, the the groves and we'll move it and it'll be very profitable for you. And they throw some figures out, but the constraint, then they get to the constraint of these water constraints that I've had documented in the book. And there's this big battle in California over how much water gets diverted from the main rivers that feed these, you know, dams and canals and aqueducts. And a certain amount has to go out through the San Francisco Bay Delta or that eco that entire ecosystem just completely collapses and it's already in a state of collapse. And so there's a battle and the federal government controls it. That part of the water system is controlled by the federal government. And there is also another uh, parallel system that the state government controls. And so uh, there's this, you know, ongoing, you know, multi-decade battle over this in California. These companies are very influential in maximizing the amount of water that comes out of out of that delta, and they realize that they need, you know, it can't be just the wonderful company, this, you know, this couple, the Resnicks in Los Angeles who have this billion dollar empire, they can't be the, the, the face of the lobbying. And so they need the rank and file farmers. And I, th- and I think something really similar happens in the Midwest uh, with the Farm Bureau. Um, the Farm Bureau is also big in California and plays a similar role, but um, the sort of uh, Midwestern Farm Bureau, you know, I, I document in the, in the book that this corn and soy dominated agriculture doesn't really work that well for farmers because it just puts them in hyper competition with each other and with growers in Brazil and Argentina and Ukraine. They're all growing the same thing and ensuring the price is going to be low, but they need you know, some ideology to get the farmers behind the agenda. And, you know, I think Farm Bureau is masterful at things like the waters of the U.S. rule, that really complicated technical thing that the Obama administration put into effect because it had, it was forced by a court order. This is, uh, has to do with the um, Clean Water Act. It doesn't really affect farmers at all, but the Farm Bureau rallied farmers around it as this big threat and when um, Trump reversed it, it was this big victory. It showed that Trump was behind them and the Farm Bureau had their back. In reality, it had very little to do with them, but it maintains this sort of farmer base for what they're doing. If you want to regulate farms or if you want to you know, put environmental re- regulations on agriculture in the Midwest, then you're, you know, you're fighting not... Monsanto and Bear and Syngenta, but you're fighting these rank and file farmers. It's just masterful corporate spin, basically. And I think that situation with pistachios in the Central Valley is a classic example of that. Because you're you're basically asking farmers to demand water that really isn't going to be there. If you look at the climate models in California, 
the flip side of these giant mega floods that are probably coming is also giant mega droughts. There are two sides of a coin. Climate models say that the snowpack is going to disappear in 30 or 40 years. And we've already tapped the groundwater, the aquifers a lot. And so when you're exhorting farmers to put in multi-million dollar pistachio groves, you're, you're probably getting them to put in plantations that are, are going to be really hard to water in 15 years. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty dire situation. I mean, it seems like that's one of the links between kind of the Midwest and California, the regions that, you're, that you focus on is basically, even though the landscapes are so different, in both cases, you have you know, massive technological success that has allowed them allowed us as a country to get all this food out of both regions, you know, and harness the water or get everything, grow tons of corn or tons of soy. But now kind of with climate change and also just sort of massively producing for so long, we're, we're going to now start kind of paying the price. And that seems to be here now in California, really. And, you know, maybe, horizon in the in the Midwest. Or I don't know, how would you describe kind of the situation with the soil in the Midwest? You describe kind of these ephemeral gullies. One thing I love about how that part starts is if you go visit the Midwest, kind of the height of growing season, you're going to see all these really, like, really impressive in the Corn Belt. You're going to see all this production. But what you want to do is go when it's vulnerable, because that's mm. when you're seeing this looming risk. And so would you say kind of we're hitting, we're sort of going to have to pay the price now or, or how do you think it's going to play out kind of in the next, I don't know, 10 years, five to 10 years? I don't see anything good happening from the status quo um, because we are seeing this ever accelerating intensification of corn and soybeans that this agriculture is really, really well established. And it's really hard to change course from it. And unless there's policy change, what I see is more of the same with stronger spring and late winter storms and more and more soil going on the move. And more soil going on the move means more pressure to add fertilizers and probably also pesticides. And there's only so much soil there. It's, you know, it's not a renewable resource in any, in any way in a human life scale. And so without policy intervention, I see a just ecological uh, unraveling in that, in that area. And it's an area that we rely on as much as California, because it is the central node of meat production, those, those corn and soybeans do um, course through the U.S. food system and even uh, power our cars in the form of ethanol. Although I think the push, I think the push to electric cars general trend of driving less is going to ease up just, you know, despite the lobbying of the, the corn and, you know, this whole industry. I think we are going to see ethanol, which now consumes about a third of the U.S. corn crop. Uh, which is just mind-boggling. Um, I think we are going to see that ease up, which is a good thing. I was just reading that the oil industry and the corn industry are getting together to do battle against uh, Joe Biden's agenda of ramping up electric cars, which is going to be an interesting thing to watch. But I think ultimately futile. I, I don't think you can 
that horse is out of the barn or whatever the cliche is. So I, I think that, that that's a good thing. I think that will put lower pressure on maximizing corn and soybean production. But that's the only good thing I see in the horizon in terms of the status quo. I think policies that encourage diversification in that area would be a very, very good thing and, and take us off of this race to the cliff, I think, that we're on right now. Do you think we need to eat less meat, just to put it to you directly? Because I think that was the only thing I differed with you on, just some of the solutions. But because I think this idea of using animals in, in a livestock animals in a more diversified way is definitely interesting and, and could be part of the solution. But I also think we just need to eat less meat, probably. So oh. I'm curious if you agree with that <laughs> and how, if so, like, you know, what do you see as sort of like dietary changes that uh, shifts that might need to happen and policies on that? I think absolutely. Uh, we agree on that. I think that this uh, system that we have is very, very efficient and it has made, has put high meat production within reach of, of most people in the United States. Um, our growing ranks of food insecure people, maybe kind of notwithstanding. And uh, I don't think switching over to a more diversified model, I think if we do that, then we are going to see uh, lower meat production and higher prices, no doubt. And I think that um, that goes hand in hand with just sort of eating less of it. There's no doubt about it. One thing that I think is really interesting is that we're in this global model, in this global system. And so when we eat less meat in the United States, that doesn't necessarily mean that our factory sort of giant farm operations actually slow down. And that's because, and so this actually happened with the Great Recession for seven or eight years after the Great Recession, U.S. meat production dropped for the first time in a long time. Um, not, not by very much, but it stopped growing and in fact declined on a per capita basis. But, uh, and there was also, you know, in that same time, 2008, 2009, because of ethanol, because of uh, Wall Street speculation, there was this big boom in commodity prices, corn and soybeans, and that also, you know, pinched the profits of these companies and meat got a little bit more expensive. That situation cleared up pretty fast. Prices dropped pretty quickly after that. But when we pulled back, they were able to make up the difference and then some in exports. And the model here is very, very much export oriented uh, for beef, beef less so, but especially chicken and pork. And so Americans just choosing to eat less meat isn't necessarily enough. I mean, I think like climate change, you know, we need to cut our carbon emissions and greenhouse gas emissions, but we also need a we need global coordination on it. Yes, um, I was just going to say yes because yeah. it's a global system, and yeah, yeah. And so if we if we all if we Americans all drive less and consume less gas, that does also have the effect of lowering gas prices and oil prices, and that could mean um, more uh, consumption in other places. And so that's sort of the reason why there's so much energy around the Paris Climate Accords and something you know maybe something with more teeth coming up uh, mm -hmm. going forward. And I think there needs to be a global meat accord. And I, I think there's been some good work around it. I bet you covered the Eat Lancet stuff that came out um, in the last couple of years. And it's pushing towards, you know, if you talk to the Eat Lancet folks, which is this kind of global 
conglomeration of scientists, environmental groups, they will say that in some parts of the world, meat production, meat consumption should rise. People would be healthier if they ate a little bit more meat. But in America, uh, the United States, we need to, I believe, something like have our meat consumption, eat, eat about half as much meat. And I, I think global coordination, um, which is extremely difficult, as we've seen with the climate process. But, you know, I think food, the food system and the climate and, and climate politics are really so deeply intertwined. And that was one of the points of the Lancet report that I think that getting food into the climate conversation is going to be key. And I think some kind of global meat deal uh, would be, you know, I think it's a little hard to imagine right now, but, you know, maybe in a couple of years, it wouldn't be so hard to imagine. It's, you know, we're going to see, you know, probably in 2021, we're going to see horrible climate disasters, unfortunately, that are going to make us continue to think harder about climate change. And, and meat is a big part of that. Yeah, I'm definitely familiar with that. And I wasn't sure where you kind of came down on that. So global meat accord, we have, you've heard it here first from Tom mm. Philpott. <laughs> Maybe we'll we'll end on that, actually, because I uh, that is definitely a point of a, agreement between us. Well, it's been so interesting. I would love to talk to you for much longer. but And so I just want to thank you for spending the time to talk about this book, because it was really fascinating. And I, I really, really enjoyed reading it. So I hope everyone who's listening goes and gets a, a copy. So thank you for talking to me today. Thank you so much for a great interview. 